copy of the scriptural text and turn to the um, passage that Pastor Dave read a few moments ago from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. We're continuing in our study of this uh, great epistle, uh, learning to live the authentic Christian life and seeing so much of ourselves and the postmodern church in uh, and through the eyes of the Corinthian church in the first century. And just as a, a recap to remember where we are in our study, Paul has been contrasting the wisdom of this world with godly wisdom. Wisdom of this world that apparently had um, fascinated and attracted the Corinthian church. And uh, he's contrasting that and comparing it with the true wisdom of God. God's wisdom that's so unlike uh, the world's thinking. God's wisdom that is so contrary to the world's expectations and even contrary to the world's particular tastes. And so here we've had this comparison between God's wisdom and, and worldly wisdom. And as we saw last week, this wisdom of God is something that has to be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. The world is not able to see or to comprehend this wisdom of God. In fact, the world will see the message of Christ, and in particular, Paul has made his argument, the message of the cross will be to the world as foolishness. It will be utter silliness to the world. And the world will never embrace these deep spiritual truths unless the Holy Spirit of God shows it to them and takes the blinders off of their eyes and and the stoppers out of their ears. And the Corinthians would have never experienced this wonderful love and grace of God had the Spirit not been active and moving in their midst through the ministry of the great Apostle Paul. So Paul has, has laid out his strong case concerning the importance of Uh, having the mind of Christ, the importance of having a whole new perspective on life, the importance of seeing this world, not as the world sees it, but seeing it in a totally different way than even the Corinthians used to before they came to faith in Christ, and having eternity stamped on their minds and their hearts. Remember what Paul said in our text as we looked at it last week in in chapter 2 and verse 9. He said, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Remember, he's not talking about off there in glory in heaven. He's talking about the present reality, the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ who died and rose again from, from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father on high and is the exalted Christ. And because of our faith in His finished work, positionally we have been saved, we've been redeemed, and everything that belongs to Jesus, this is the truth Paul is trying to impress upon the Corinthians, everything that belongs to Christ belongs to the One who is in Christ. Paul says, and because of this, we must remember that this was all a gift of God And we don't look at things through a worldly perspective any longer. But now we must let the Holy Spirit of God fill us with this mind that we can see and know and understand true wisdom that comes from God. 
We don't have to take opinion polls to understand what truth is. We don't have to go out on the streets and ask people what truth is. We don't have to guess at what's true. If we surrender to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and if we'll allow Him to be our teacher and our guide, which is one of the Spirit's offices, He is charged by the Father to be our teacher, our guide, the one who will lead us into truth. If we'll surrender to the leadership of the Spirit, then we will start to see and know and comprehend and live by that truth. We'll start to see ourselves in a different way. We'll start to see other people in a different light. We'll start to understand our God-given purposes. We'll start to see this world and, and all of its havoc in a different light. Because we'll begin to see things as the Spirit is our teacher. We'll begin to see things through God's eyes, God's perspective. And as a result of that, we'll start thinking and acting and behaving like Jesus. Because as the mind of Christ controls us, think about this, the mind of Christ is in you. As the mind of Christ controls you, and as you yield to that mind which is in you, the Spirit who dwells within you, you'll begin to, to behave like Jesus because you have the mind of Christ. So as chapter 3 begins, Paul begins to turn his attention once more to the problem of division and discord in the body uh, in the Corinthian church. He first uh, introduced this subject in chapter 1 and verses 10 through 12. We saw how people were gathering around their favorite teachers and preachers and I'm for Paul, I'm for Cephas, I'm for Apollos. The church in Corinth was riddled with problems. They were very, very, very sick. There was no harmony. As a result, there was no unity. As a result, there was no ability to achieve their mission in this world. And as you read through this epistle, which I hope you're doing on a systematic basis, reading it each week between our Sunday gatherings, it seems to me that the church in Corinth was divided about everything. They argued about everything. Sexual sin, they argued about church discipline, they argued about lawsuits, what kind of food was acceptable to eat, what kind of food is not acceptable to eat, what kind of spiritual gifts in the church are the most important kinds of gifts, what about speaking in tongues, there was chaos in their worship, there was chaos when it came to the Lord's Supper, they couldn't get along about anything, they were divided, there were splits. Why was the church in this condition? Paul makes his point in chapter 3 that they had fallen prey to love the wisdom of this world. They were not operating out of the sphere of the Spirit, but instead they were operating out of the natural sphere. And as we've seen already, Paul rather plainly and bluntly speaks to them and reminds them about the infinite difference between the wisdom of God and that that uh, wisdom of men, the secret and hidden wisdom of God, which is revealed by the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of this world. And he makes the point that these two ways of living are contradictory. You can't put them together, the natural world and the spiritual world. You can't mix them. One excludes the other. There's no compromise between the natural and the spiritual. Paul says there is the natural man, and natural thinking is that kind of thinking that is, that is uh, displayed by the world around us. It is limited. It is confused. It's uncertain. It sets an uncertain tempo and tone. 
And then Paul says they're spiritual thinking. The spiritual man has been given by the Spirit, the mind of Christ, and, and the spiritual woman or man has this thinking. Therefore, this thinking is comprehensive. It takes in all things. It is authoritative. The spiritual woman or man is not to be judged by anyone. It is realistic. It deals with life as it really is. You see, the problem that plagued the Corinthian church is a problem that plagues the church today. The problem with the Corinthian church was that they were being governed by, by natural thinking, by men's thinking. Instead of being governed by spiritual thinking, they were still operating on the natural philosophy of the world. They were captivated by the philosophers of their time. And they were bringing all of that worldly thinking into the church. And I would, uh, I would submit to you this morning... And hope that you would not have trouble agreeing with me that is this problem of the Corinthian church that I think is plaguing the church today. In many, many places around the world, but particularly in the Western world, it seems to me that we are seeking to operate the church of Jesus Christ like it was a religious country club. We've taken the lighthouse of God and we've made it a clubhouse. Little regard is given anymore to the true nature of the church of Jesus. That the church was designed by God. Now listen, if I were God, I would have chosen a different way than doing it through the church. I think, my limited and finite wisdom, that the church is, is a pretty lousy way of accomplishing God's mission based on past experience. But God, in His wisdom and sovereignty, has chosen the church to speak the glorious message of Christ to a degraded, discouraged, and defeated world. But the problem is, we're trying to run the church like a business corporation. We're trying to run it like a country club. Uh, we want to appoint the pastor as the chief executive officer. We want to incorporate secular systems and the thinking of the world, uh, apply management method. Now, I, don't misunderstand me. I, I believe that, that in all things we should do them decently and in order. I believe that God is a God of order, and, and I'm not saying that we should be sloppy or careless in our management and stewardship of things spiritual. But I think the church is in danger of going to the other end of the continuum and, and we are buying into the world system of belief and thinking and trying to operate the church like we would a, a, a Fortune 500 company. And when this happens, when this natural type thinking takes over in the church, if it is left unchecked, it will destroy the work of God. It will destroy the vitality and the, the spiritual life of the church. It will, it will take the wind out of the sails of the church if we allow the, the world's method, the world's philosophy to be overlaid upon the church. And Paul, as he is able to do so well, he's like a Dutch uncle. He just says things in plain language. And he says, that approach is wrong. And in chapter 3, he says, Brothers, I, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. 
I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you still are not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? I want you to notice that three times Paul uses the word there in those verses. He uses the word worldly. Some translations put it of the flesh. I think that word there is is the root of the Corinthian problem and is the root of the problem in the church today. We are worldly. The apostle says, and he uses two different uh, Greek words in these verses that are translated the same way in the English, but there's a difference between them. In verse 1, when he says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, the word he uses there is the Greek word sarkanos. It's based on the Greek word sarks. The flesh. We could translate the word he uses there in verse 1, sarkanos, into English by using the English word fleshy. Paul isn't putting them down when he says, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly sarkanas. He is merely recognizing their nature. He's saying that they are fleshy people. Fleshy people. They are flesh and blood. We're all fleshy people. Some of us are more fleshy than others. <laughs> Paul's not putting them down there when he says you are sarkanas. He's saying, I could speak to you as spiritual men, but you are fleshy men. You're not just spirit, but you're made of body as well. The beautiful thing about this is that that Paul is is beginning where they were. He he was meeting them uh, on the the journey of discipleship. When he had been there years previously, before the writing of this epistle, he had found them to be just plain old ordinary folk made of flesh and blood. He met them where they were. He'd been appointed by God to to carry the glorious gospel of Christ to them. And when he, He came to them, they received this word. The Spirit revealed the truth of this word to their hearts. And they were gloriously saved. And Paul says that even after they came to Christ, he recognizes that they were still fleshy, that they... They had not advanced that far beyond the normal, natural outlook of flesh and blood. Now, he's very careful to say that they're not unregenerate, that is, they're unbelievers. No, he calls them brothers. He says that they are in Christ. Remember this phrase, in Christ, is one that that Paul repeatedly uses to describe the the position of the believer, that when we come to faith in Christ, when God redeems us by His grace and by His shed blood, when we come by saving faith to Christ, we are now in Christ, positionally. It was in our reading in in 1 Peter this morning. What did Peter say? Once you were not a people, but now... Because of the grace God of God, you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, Peter says, but now you have received mercy. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation belonging to God. Positionally, we are in Christ. 
We are made holy, saints every one. When God the Father looks on us because of the glorious grace of Jesus Christ, God positionally, this is true, God looks at us and all He can see is the righteousness of Christ, which has been imputed to our life account. Isn't that a glorious thought? He doesn't see my mess-ups and my foul-ups. Now, He wants to sanctify me and make me more like Jesus, but when He looks at me, not because of anything I've done, not because I perform well, He sees the righteousness. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They are in Christ. But Paul is honest enough with them to say that though they are in Christ, they are still spiritual infants. And there is the problem. They are immature spiritually. Now remember, Paul had been there about a year and a half. He he, he kind of camped there for a year and a half, preached to them, taught them. And he's recognizing the fact that during that time, they had not advanced very far beyond spiritual infancy. They were still governed by thinking of the flesh. But now, when he writes this epistle, additional time has transpired. Several years have gone by. Three or four years have gone by. And Paul is now addressing them. And he's heard reports from servants in Chloe's household that things are a literal mess in the church at Corinth. And he writes to them several years later. And he says, Now, with all the time it has passed, I really thought that by this time in your journey that you would have grown up in the Lord. That you'd be growing stronger in your walk with God and in your faith. That you'd be growing together at the body of Christ. Paul says, I really expected after all this passage of time that you'd be digesting the deep truths of God. That you'd be grasping the deep love of Christ. That you'd be cooperating with the Holy Spirit as He wants to change you and transform you into the people God always dreamed that you could become. But, based on the reports I'm getting, instead of you being mature Christians, it really doesn't seem like you've changed at all. You're still sitting in your high chairs, sucking on your baby bottles and screaming at each other. And so he confronts them, later in these verses, a different aspect of fleshiness. And he refers... Uh, to flesh in a slightly different word in verse 3, it is the word not sarkinos, but it is the word sarkikos. Both are translated of the flesh or carnal, but they're different in the Greek. Sarkinos is fleshy. Sarkikos is fleshly. That is dominated by the flesh. Same root, but Sarkikos, I want to make sure I get it right, it means dominated by the flesh. Some of your uh, scriptural texts may use the word carnal. That's based on the Latin word carne, from which we get the word carnivore. A carnivore is uh, an animal or being that what? Eats meat. Carne, meat. Flesh. So the King James, I think, translates this, Are you not yet carnal of the flesh? You are carnal, Paul says. You're dominated by the flesh. Your thinking is fleshly. You're you're not fleshy, but you're fleshly. 
and you're behaving like mere men, verse 3 says. So Paul turns from their past condition when he was amongst them to their present condition, now that which is being reported to them, to him. And he says, although you are Christians, now remember, they're Christians. Although you're Christ followers, you're still acting like unbelievers. You're still dominated by the flesh, the world and the devil. You are still carnal, fleshly. The Corinthians claimed to be Christ followers, spiritual women and men, but they were acting according to the flesh. They came uh, to proclaim and claim the name of Christ, but they were acting like secular pagans. Listen to me. If you're going to live as an authentic Christ follower, if you are truly born into the family of God, you better start acting like your father. If, if, if you are a member of God's family and God is your father, then there ought to be some family resemblance. There ought to be some family traits that are evident in your life if you are truly a Christ follower. God is righteous, therefore you should be seeking righteousness in your life. God is holy, therefore you should be seeking holiness in your life. God is love. Therefore, you should be loving in your interactions with others. God is forgiving. Therefore, if you're truly part of God's family, you also should be forgiving. Unfortunately, though, based on the reports Paul is getting, the Corinthians were none of these things. They were manifesting none of the family traits of their spiritual father. And instead of being spiritual, they were being dominated by the flesh. They were carnal. They were fleshly. Instead of walking like Jesus Christ, they were walking like mere men. And this was most evidenced by the fact that there was jealousy and strife in the midst of their body. Paul says you've been saved by the grace of God. You received and embraced the message of the cross. The Holy Spirit has illuminated and renewed and is, is doing a transforming work in your life. Once you'd been blind to the truth, but the Spirit of God has revealed this truth to you. And in His mercy and grace, He has saved you. God had delivered them from spiritual darkness. Ransomed, restored, healed, forgiven. So Paul says, what in the world is happening? It is a senseless waste and error that you would return to the world's way of thinking and acting. Why would you do this? Paul's whole argument reduces to this one point. The Holy Spirit has revealed this to you. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. The Spirit's power is at work in your lives. He has made you different. You are a brand new creature. Didn't Paul say it elsewhere? That when you came to faith in Christ, you are a new what? Creation. Old things have what? Passed away. And behold, all things have become new. When you were regenerated by the Spirit, redeemed by the blood of God, you became a new creature. The Holy Spirit took up residence in you so that elsewhere, Paul says, you are the temple of God, of the Holy Spirit. So then why is it, with all of these positional truths in place, 
What are you doing imitating the world and its way of thinking and its way of behaving? You've been given this precious, precious gift of God, and yet you are frittering it away. You're returning to a futile way of thinking and living like a dog returns to its vomit. Why would you do that? It is absolutely staggering to me, my friends. Absolutely staggering. To see how many of us can come to church Sunday after Sunday, participate in a community life group, join a small group, can even stand in the choir loft and sing or stand behind a lectern and teach God's Word and never be changed into the likeness of Jesus. Never allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us, to transform the way we see ourselves in Christ, to, to transform the way we see other people. How many of us, though we are old in the faith, still hold on to the world's perspective. And as a result, we have become materialistic, we're prideful, we're envious, we're angry, we're judgmental, we're legalistic. And definitely we don't, based on the fruit, we don't possess the mind of Christ. And as Paul looks at what's going on in the Corinthian church, it's obvious to him that they are embracing the old values of their natural thinking. And proof positive is the jealousy and the bickering that's going on in the church. Look at what he says in verse 3. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Do you want to know whether or not you are fleshly? It's very easy to find out. How do you get along with other Christians? I think that's a spiritual barometer of your fleshliness. If you often find yourselves at odds with your Christian brothers and sisters, there's probably a reason for that. Because you are of an incompatible nature. Flesh never gets along with spirit. If you get nothing else out of this message, get this. Flesh never gets along with spirit. They are contrary one to the other. They're always at odds. Remember what Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 5 and verse 17? He said, For the sinful nature desires that which is carnal, desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. The Spirit and the sinful nature are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you can relate to that? You see, the flesh has different desires than the Spirit. Our flesh, our carnality, has a different outlook than the Spirit. The flesh has different goals than the Spirit. The Corinthians could not get along with one another. Why? Because they were being ruled by the carnal flesh. They were carnal. And the result was jealousy and strife and instead of unity and love and being 
propelled into this mission of taking the glorious message of the cross to the world. They envied each other's gifts and knowledge. They strove about words to no end and profit. They entered into senseless debates and contentions about who was their favorite minister, and they divided up into factions and parties. And in these ways, the Corinthians gave clear evidence of their predominant carnality, their fleshliness. And the condition still exists in the church today. My dear younger brother, Barry, who is a minister of the gospel and serves with the Southern Baptist Convention, he has a tough assignment he pastors in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Don't you feel sorry for him? He has been called in the last two years to serve as the senior pastor of the Baptist church there in Myrtle Beach. He's a golfer. He's in golfer's paradise. I think there are 160 golf courses in Myrtle Beach in the environs. Every time I call him, he's on the golf course. I keep reminding him because he has this plum of an assignment because in God's economy, things are going to be reversed and the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That my mansion is going to be much bigger than his in glory. I've spent my life in Erie. But over these last months, the carnality of fleshly people has reared its ugly head in the midst of the church that he serves. And there are factions and divisions in that church such that in the last few weeks 250 people have left his congregation. Nasty emails and letters. Verbal abuse and um, slander have been spoken. And I'll be the first to admit to you that my brother Barry is not a perfect individual. But he is God's servant and he is doing his dead level best to serve the people of God there. And yet because of carnality, there is a split in the church over senseless issues. And Barry's church situation there in Myrtle Beach can be repeated time and time again across Christendom today. Listen to me, church. We Christians better band together because of the forces of hell have leveled their guns at the church. And we better stand united because if we don't unite ourselves around the cross of Jesus, we will inevitably fall. Paul says, the reason that there's jealousy and strife is because you're not dominated by the Spirit, which by now you should be. You're just a bunch of spiritual babies. It's time for you to grow up. Stop needing the milk of the Word. By now you should be getting into the deep truths of God. Now listen, I don't have anything against babies. I love babies. They're delightful little individuals that coo and burp and 
do all sorts of things. No one minds a baby when they're little. We don't mind going the extra mile to care for a baby. But when that condition goes on and on and on, and the baby becomes 5 and 10 and 15 and 20 years of age, and still requires the same amount of care as it did when it was an infant, and you're still changing diapers, it is an absolutely disgusting condition. And unfortunately, church pews across America are filled, even though there are people who've been claiming the name of Christ for decades. Church pews are filled with spiritual babies that are sucking on their bottles and needing their diapers changed. And it's time for Christians to grow up. And that's my humble opinion. We are like young children tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine. We are focusing on all the wrong things. And we are so much like the Corinthians. Spiritual babyhood that continues too long and requires milk instead of meat, a failure to grow up, represents a severe case of arrested development. Is it any wonder that the witness of the church of Jesus Christ has been dulled so? When we treat each other the way we do, when we fail to love as Christ loved, when we fail to forgive one another as Christ forgave, when, when, when we focus on the minors and not major on the majors, is it any wonder that the mission of the church is struggling around the world today. What's the cure for this? I believe it's surrender to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You see, there's only one way to, to deal with the flesh. You can't beat it. You can't tame it into submission. Do you know what the only answer for the flesh is? Crucifixion. You must die. Listen, saints, don't pray for God to make you better. Pray for God to kill you, to make you dead. I'm talking spiritually, of course. <laughs> that old nature, the old carnal flesh, must be crucified with Christ in order that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our bodies and our lives. We must yield to the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Is this not what Paul meant when he wrote to the Colossians and he said, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, that is sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desires, and greed, which is idolatry. We must yield those things to the leadership of the Spirit. You are regenerated people, or I trust most of you are. You're walking in relationship with God. You've been forgiven. Your name's been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But how many of you have progressed beyond that point where you were when Christ first found you and saved you? Or are you still living in spiritual infancy, still dominated by the flesh? There's only one cure for it, and that is yieldedness, surrender to God. 
I think some of the um, the old timers had a better sense of this than we do today. Andrew Murray, a man for whom I have great appreciation of his writings, many, many books, among them with Christ in the School of Prayer. But there's a favorite volume of Andrew Murray's, which uh, a friend of mine actually gave to me out of his library. You can see it's a well-worn copy. It's got coffee stains and all sorts of things on it. But he talks about the need for absolute surrender to God. Listen to what Murray says. And with us, we'll close. Give up yourselves absolutely. Give up yourselves absolutely to the will of God. Say absolutely to the Lord God, by thy grace, Lord, I desire to do your will in everything, every moment of every day. Say, Lord God, not a word upon my tongue, but for your glory. Not a movement of my temper, but for your glory. Not an affection of love or hate in my heart, but for your glory and according to your blessed will. He continues, later in that same chapter, he says, How much of our Christian work today is being done in the spirit of the flesh and in the power of self? How much work day by day in which human energy, our will, and our thoughts about the work is continually manifested in which there is but little of waiting upon God and upon the power of the Holy Ghost? Let us make confession. But as we confess the state of the church and the feebleness and sinfulness of work for God among us, let us come to ourselves. Who is there who truly longs to be delivered from the power of the self-life, who truly acknowledges that it is the power of self and the flesh, and who is willing to cast all of that at the feet of Christ? And he says with this hopeful word, when you do that, when you lay it out in absolute surrender at the feet of Christ, he says, there is deliverance. What we need is a movement of God in our midst that will lead people to humble themselves before God in absolute surrender and pour it all out and say, God, I want to be all for you. Everything, every moment, every day, not just on Sunday, not just when I go to my community life group, not just when I meet with my small group members, but every day, Lord, I want to live every moment for your glory. And rather than being dominated by my flesh, I want to be controlled by your spirit. Wouldn't it be, just imagine for a moment, wouldn't it be a glorious church to be a part of? where people had a similar heart to that. Just think what could be done for the kingdom of Christ if all of us, in a spirit of yieldedness and absolute surrender, gave it all out for God. Just imagine the mark we could make on the world for Christ. That's authentic living. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. May God help us to be those people. Let's pray.